Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week Anoush is away, so I'm joined by Alva Ray to discuss Dominic Cummings, is he mad, bad and dangerous to know? The withdrawal agreement, is it really dead? And the student who filed her dissertation in just one night. So Westminster is full of stories about our new bolding overlord, Dominic Cummings, and Albert, you are writing a piece this week about the kind of idea of the political genius staffer, etc., etc. So you've been reading the collected works of Dominic Cummings. What are your kind of feelings about that? I have. I mean, it's just so fascinating. The second that his appointment was announced by Laura Koonsberg, everyone sort of took a collective intake of breath. He's just considered a really, really fascinating character and is being given so much more attention than any equivalent advisor in his situation has been in recent times. If you think of someone like Theresa May's Gavin Barwell, no one was that interested. But this guy, Dominic Cummings, he basically has a sort of an air of genius around him, which I think says much more about us as a sort of media class and about other politicians than it does about him. It's all very, very funny, but sort of things like, you know, when they enter Downing Street, there's a really great picture of him in the corner of the room in a t-shirt and he kind of looks like a member of the IT staff. He was famously played by Benedict Cumberbatch in the Channel 4 documentary about Brexit and, you know, he punched his hand through the ceiling at one point. He sort of famously eschews social mores. And it's just really interesting that I think everyone has bought into this idea that because of these performances, he's somehow a genius. It doesn't necessarily mean he isn't. I think he is pretty clever, having been reading the collected works. He is really, really interesting and very well read. But even he himself, in his stuff that I was reading today, talks about the importance of decision-making. I think if you strip all the stuff about his demeanour and the way he runs things, if you look at his decision-making, it's possibly more banal than people think. It's odd because, I mean, I think it feels even more over the top than the kind of like, ah, Nick Timothy, what a great brain uh, (laughs) takes, which have obviously aged incredibly poorly um, (laughs) when Theresa May came in in 2016. With, I think, the difference, and I think think Cummings, you know, is a not unreasonable political operator. But yeah, a lot of those blogs, you can summarise them in many fewer words than they use without losing any meaning or depth and it does kind of feel like the kind of yeah you you strip it away and you end up with things like message discipline is important 
Yeah, it's kind of reams after reams after reams of going on about how you can't have go global and how, mm. you know, like how dynamic he was in business for Sterling and the importance of military discipline. It's like what you're actually saying is it was important that the Leave campaign was about the NHS and not about global Britain or sovereign, you know, or mm-hmm. some. It's just like, which I mean is true. And lots of Eurosceptics didn't understand that at the time and don't appear to fully understand that now but just like because you kind of say that in a lengthy blog doesn't make you any different from ironically than like loads of the people he despises it's one of those things where it's just like but these are all things that you could learn by speaking with peter mandelson Mm -hmm. or linton crosby or to be honest like any other successful electoral strategist well that's the thing i mean it does seem like he really understands why his strategy at vote leave worked so well he could put it in maybe a shorter way but he seems to understand that it's that combined message of 350 million pounds for the nhs the really simple take back control things while tacitly benefiting from the anti-immigration messaging from people like Aaron Banks and Nigel Farage without really involving himself within that. And they also did, of course, do the Turks are coming, the Turks are coming. Yeah, but it's just, I I find the the bluster and the performance just so interesting because I, like anyone else, find him very, very interesting. And I think it's really notable that in the past few weeks we've been hearing just as much about him as we've been hearing about Boris Johnson himself. And he was doorstepped this morning and that has made the the front page of the evening standard for this evening um, when really he, uh, he only did a sort of tiny clip which is not particularly remarkable he's really is a headline maker but it's all this stuff about you know that 7.55am meeting with spads and oh, he's just like incredibly rude about people you know who's really rude about Philip Hammond and sort of criticising his Caesar said that he opposed Brexit, or I can't remember the phrasing, but that he like was frustrating plans to get no deal through, and you know he was famously quite rude to people like David Davis when he was in office. I think he called him thick as mince. Oh yeah, um, Yeah. vain as narcissus, lazy as a toad, and thick as mince was the. That's the one. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's. I think what I find interesting about the kind of wider sort of kind of cult of the advisor is. It makes sense for political strategists to try and make themselves into legends, if nothing else, because it makes it easier for them when there is not an election campaign to, you know, to get other work and to be taken seriously. And it's good for the morale of the people in the team to be like, oh, we've got we've got someone good. And it also right. So the central problem that electoral strategists tend to have is so in some cases right yeah like i would basically split them into three tiers you know people who are mostly quite good people who are kind of all right and then you know nick timothy essentially um (laughs) but most of the people in those first two tiers right it's not just enough to have an an insight about what it is you you need the candidate to say you have to have buy-in from them right which is the kind of actually the really interesting thing about almost all of, in all of the books about the 2015 election was Cameron's incredible willingness to just say what he was told by Linton Crosby. Okay, tell me what the things that we need to, the message we need to get out and I will do them. Versus Ed's slightly more combative relationship with many of his his political advisors. And I think like making a legend of yourself means people are more likely to listen to you. But mm. I'm just not convinced than it means that that legend is ever actually true well except i think in his case it's it's just completely working for him because basically 
journalists are so fascinated by this new man in Downing Street that there's so much intrigue around what he's saying in his meetings with special advisors, the way that he's running Downing Street. You know, we heard that he's, you know, put up clocks to count down to Brexit to, you know, remind people of the impending Brexit deadline. As though that's really going to make a huge difference. But like, those things are coming out. But really, there's this intrigue surrounding these meetings with, with special advisors, and he's changed things up and arranged it so that they report directly to him as opposed to their minister. And it basically means that he says quite sort of, he comes up with quite powerful rhetoric in these meetings about, you know, his job is just to pursue no deal. Like we're, go- we're coming out on the 31st of October, no matter what. And then he goes on about how, you know, there's to be absolutely no leaking. There's a, there's a one strike and you're out policy. And it obviously leaks. And all it does is contribute to exactly the message discipline that he finds so important that all the newspapers think that it's some sort of scoop that they have found out the exact message that he wants to be getting out there anyway. Mm. So the genius thing is kind of working for him. It is also August. And, you know, we are also the world's most biddable group of people, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like ultimately, he's proved that he can get good coverage out of the people who wrote good things about Nick Timothy and Theresa May. To me, at least, the thing which is, I think there are two things which aren't clear. One, this is someone who, you know, in his blog, has written at great length about the needs to Mullerize, like, to do what George Muller did to, to NASA, to the civil service. And he's now claiming outwardly that he is okay with, then he thinks this civil service is equipped to deliver no deal. Mm-hmm. It's just like, well, so were you wrong then? Are you wrong now? Or are you actually just bluffing then parliament will allow you to because what i thought was interesting about that sky clip is he doesn't go you know the question he's asked is are you ready for no deal and he doesn't go yeah yeah it's we're working really hard he goes mps can't cancel votes they don't like which is a great and powerful line in an election but it feels to me at least like this is a government which is looking for an excuse to go oh god we've been blocked or is a government that does somehow believe it can do no deal but if it turns out that either of those things aren't true then like he will not look like a genius he will just look like a slightly odd bloke in a t-shirt and this is the thing isn't it that it's not really clear at the moment whether he's in Downing Street for the short term to get Boris Johnson through an impending general election Mm. or whether he's here for the long haul because I think it would make sense to me if he was just there to you know as you say to prepare for an election he's good on that kind of thing but I think so much of the way he talks and constructs things is that he likes to apportion blame to other people and that won't be a strategy that works very well if he's in things for the longer term so when he was an aide to Michael Gove he you know when he left he said pretty scathing things about literally everyone else who had worked with him he called like loads of people incompetent various people sycophants and at this point he's so powerful that the you know the buck ends with him really yeah in terms of the like vote leave stuff I have continue to be a bit of a sceptic about... If the argument for Cummings as great strategist is vote leave, then I kind of think it is then beholden on people advancing an argument to explain what the significant difference in message between that and no to AV was. Mm -hmm. And I think it's quite hard to sustain the case that there was a significant difference between those two campaigns. And I just think at the point where it becomes hard to sustain the argument and there was a significant difference, it's hard to see that sustain the argument then he is a kind of uniquely uniquely brilliant yeah. figure and it's like what 
we were saying the other day that, you know, he's credited as being the mastermind behind Brexit and, you know, behind the huge shock to this democracy. And as you were pointing out, you know, it maybe isn't completely surprising that one of the most Eurosceptic countries in Europe voted to leave at a point of economic hardship. Yeah, that, you know, he's maybe taking credit for things that were a bit bigger than that. I do think there's an element that the the myth of Cummings, I mean, it's helpful because it's August and otherwise it's just going like, oh, well, the parliamentary arithmetic is the parliamentary arithmetic. So it's mm-hmm. helpful to us. Yeah. It's helpful to the Remain campaign because it's helpful to go, oh, we lost to a genius. And it's helpful to people who are solely access-based journalists because it gives them someone to be nice about in exchange for access, of which I still think the funniest example is the clock, right? Yeah. Like, um, <laughs> the transformation of, of Guido Fawkes into this kind of thing where it, like, it really does feel like Pravda, right? You know, like mm-hmm. grain production up 50%. Going, you know, talking about how, you know, this digi- they've got this digital clock counting down to Brexit. They had a digital clock on the walls in the Boris leadership campaign counting down to the ballot date and a digital clock in Vote Leave. It's like, third, literally they used, without irony the sentence, a third time lucky. <laughs> I think there were lots of things wrong with Stronger In, but I don't think that on the 23rd of June they were like... We should have forgot they were, some yeah, clocks. They were like, yeah, they were like, oh, <laughs> That's is, the is, trick we missed. Yeah, is, is it today? We didn't know because we didn't have a clock on the wall. Like, it's just... The interesting thing is, I think so far, in terms of the very big gamble they have taken with both the future of the country and, and indeed the Tory party, mostly I think they are doing quite sensible things within that, you know, like kind of becoming much more draconian sounding on crime... Yeah, talking up Brexit. I think the one thing I think is slightly more risky is the NHS stuff. Mm, Because that's funding that had already been allocated. Well, also just it takes ages to, you know, like... To build a brand around being the party that protects the NHS. Yeah, and and also, like, you know, funding the NHS isn't like, you know, buying a clock to put on the wall and telling people how clever you are because you've got a clock on on the wall. I actually think kind of in a way, the the new, the fact that it's money repurposed from elsewhere in the department, I think is sort of secondary, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you go to your local doctors and you think, oh, God, things are falling apart, maybe we should change the government, this money is not going to change your lived experience between now and October. All it does is it mm. increases the salience of the NHS, an issue which the Conservative Party does not win on, right? Like, Yeah. It, it, and Well, it gives people a good comeback on doorsteps, basically. Yeah. Well, you can say, oh, you know, people complain about doctors or NHS funding mm. under the Conservatives, and they say, well, well we've unleashed another, is it 1.8 billion? Yeah. 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 I think, yeah, the, the kind of the big looming test about this government's political strategy is the comprehensive spending review, because there are lots of things like the health care, like helm homelessness, like school spending, where, where yeah, I think actually fairly small amounts of money in the grand scheme of government spending could probably make a lot of those problems go away. However, I probably wouldn't talk about them in my national messaging. I think they mm-hmm. make sense as a kind of like, you know, like that Cameron poster of, you know, we'll cut the deficit, not the NHS, of a kind of like... We've parked this issue because we've said we'll ma- we will we won't cut it. Mm-hmm. What we'd like to do is pivot onto issues on which we're strong, because I think the you know, the big challenge is is that you know yeah he he talks at one point in one of his blogs about how Vote Leave was able to hack the political system, and it's just one of those things where it's like, or as with all referendums, 
it was able to have a transitory brand. And I'm fascinated to see whether or not this stuff works when it is attached to a brand which people already have, for good and for ill, very strong reactions to, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, yeah. we, we could literally, like, you know, if we wanted to, like, do the world's cruelest A-B tests on our podcast listeners, we, we could literally, like, in the next segment, talk about, like, Corbyn's plan for the police Boris Johnson's plan for the police then be exactly identical and get different reactions and I'm intrigued to see how it works for yeah yeah me too I mean I find it a bit annoying earlier in the week that that NHS announcement was being reported on the morning news sort of without any sort of context or um skepticism around it because it's just like so clearly like pre-election campaigning but yeah as you say it's it's part of this wider bid to attract leave voters at the expense of remain voting conservatives i mean feel like the way they're going they aren't maybe going to be able to hold on to remain voters within the conservative party but they're really just hoping to scoop up all of the disparate leave voters even who wouldn't work for the conservative banner so it's really like which brand is stronger the leave brand which is kind of ephemeral it's a very new thing even though people are deeply attached to it at the moment or the conservative brand which has been accumulating for much, much longer. Yeah, and that's, that is the fun part. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Yep. And this week, the question comes from Matt Woods, which is, do I still think that my Brexit flowchart, i.e. the flowchart I did ages ago where I went, look, eventually, you know, you can have elections, you can have extensions, but mm-hmm. eventually Parliament just passes the withdrawal agreement. Do I still think that eventually some variation on the withdrawal agreement is passed by a weary and beleaguered Parliament? Can Boris get a glitter turd through if it comes down to it? So we actually have different views on this. Mm. Obviously, one of the things we talk about in the NS politics bullpen is, you know, whether or not we are all going to, you know, be like plunged into a mad, yeah, yeah. To a mad madness. <laughs> um, and so you think the deal's going to come back in some form? I do. I mean, I would say that I just feel like it's kind of impossible to know how much people are bluffing. And there's so many different players in this that it's just kind of hard to predict the alchemy of it and, and like who will move and when. But I just feel like probably even within government, there's no one who genuinely wants no deal. I may be wrong on that, but people seem to know deep down that it could be quite damaging for the Conservative Party to deliver a no deal Brexit and the predicted consequences of that. So I think, you know, there must be some sort of expectation that the EU will budge at the last minute. And we've been discussing what that budge would look like. And I feel like it doesn't, wouldn't even have to be terribly significant. The fact that Boris Johnson is the one delivering it would 
massively changed the perception of it. We've, you know, some sort of bilateral agreement with the Republic of Ireland, or you were suggesting sort of ferry ports being some sort of option to sort of get around the issue of the backstop. I just think a very minor change to the withdrawal agreement could be enough if it looks like Boris Johnson has fought hard enough, could be enough to bring back sort of 90, 95% of Theresa May's deal with something new or with something added on to the political declaration or another piece of documentation could be enough to get the ERGers behind him and to pass. I guess where I kind of sort of part ways on the will it come back, I still can't really work out what it is that the government wants. You know, like what, what, what it is and people who complain about the backstop think they want out of this negotiation, right? Because they've ruled out having a regulatory border in the RSC. They've ruled out having a board. Yeah, so one of these things just like, so, so there's not a thing that can be produced unless there is some weird language about, oh, we love free ports. Let's have one in Anglesey, one which will mm-hmm. cover the whole of Northern Ireland. Oh, and hey, presto, we've actually put a regulatory border in the Irish Sea, but we've made it seem more buccaneering somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think the problem is, is that even allowing for the fact that he is so associated with the Leave brand, there will still be some Conservatives who won't vote for it. And yeah. it's so much harder for Labour MPs to vote for a Brexit deal brought forward by Boris Johnson at a time when they're all really nervous about their trigger ballots than it was for them to vote for a Brexit deal brought forward by Theresa May. Yeah. And most of them wouldn't do that so I think even if that happens I don't quite buy how it can happen in this parliament I think where I slightly yeah I'm going to contradict myself here right and then the weird thing is right is all of their public rhetoric is not the public rhetoric of we're actually going to go for no deal right it's not a you know we're Brits we're tough we're strong we've gone through hard believe times. in the bin yeah. yeah it's um MP shouldn't be able to block Brexit if, if we have no deal and on the Monday you know there are food shortages or there's you know a backed up traffic in Kent and you are James Cleverly, MPs shouldn't be able to cancel elections they don't like does not get you through your media round, right? Like, it, mm. it's... The thing is, right, their positioning is of a government which is looking for a, an opportunity to go, oh, my God, we've been blocked. I guess we'd better go to the country. Yeah, and it's the people versus politicians yeah. strategy which they're setting themselves up for. Yeah, and then I think, you know, if they were to win that election, which is a pretty big if, but let's, you know, just park it for a second then it of course does suddenly free up lots and lots of stuff you could do because they could just get ironically considering that the bits of the backstop that people really don't like are the bits that the last government fought and negotiated really hard for you know to have this Mm -hmm. uk wide sort of customs and regulatory orbit but you know you could then just go oh we'll have a special customs and regulatory zone the first of our free enterprise zones and that kind of solves that problem but again i just so i guess in that scenario then i guess i am saying i think the withdrawal agreement will come back but of course the weird thing is if we have no deal then we will still eventually pass something which is probably going to be the thing we've already negotiated Yeah, yeah the conclusion i'm being led towards from what you just said is that the government are expecting to be blocked on this, um, which makes sense because if you even look at somebody like Matt Hancock, who did a bit of a U-turn to come round and back Boris Johnson, I think that he and other similar types back him because they don't seriously believe that no deal can happen. They think that Parliament will block it. And I think maybe that's the expectation for Boris Johnson and co too. So... um, 
in the news today and all over Twitter, there's the story that I think she's at Durham University, an undergrad successfully wrote her dissertation overnight and got a 2-1. And it made me think about my own experience of essay crises at uni, whether on the theme of genius and what that looks like, <laughs> whether essay crises are the stuff of genius or not, what do you think? So it's odd. So I, I too have seen this story of this person. And actually, like, this makes make me sound like someone's granddad, but it actually made me deeply angry um, <laughs> because I think there were several things I thought were obnoxious about it, right? One is, right, some people will have done that and not got a 2-1 overall on their degree. It's, I just think it's quite a crass time to be like, yeah, I didn't do any... Some people mm. will have worked really hard and not got a 2-1. Some people will have sweated. I just I just think it's, it's a douchey thing to tell people you've done. I also... Mm. Yeah, as with all of these stories where it's just like, oh, I didn't do much writing. I wrote it overnight. It's just like, but I, you know, I'd done loads of reading, you know, as a form of procrastination. It's just like, you know, reading about your dissertation topic is not procrastinate. Like, you know, like most of the yeah. dissertation, really. Yeah, yeah, like it's, yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, obviously, like, you know, you've, this is your second week, right? Mm-hmm. So you've now seen, you know, like the whole full sort of deeply unpleasant uh, Stephen Bush column cycle. <laughs> like the time I actually spend typing it is, a very small amount of time. The time, times when I'm, you know, like talking to MPs or their staff is not procrastination. Like that is, mm-hmm. that is a crucial part of the, so I think there are two things. One year to kind of continue my early transition into granddad status. I think the thing I kind of thought was a bit sad is looking back, I often did, you know, busk bits of my degree when there was like, you know, a thing I was doing for the student paper or some kind of like other student activity or, you know, just through like being a bit of a layabout. And it's one of those things where I kind of think, oh, I, I'm never actually get an opportunity to write at length about a topic I'm interested in just for like curiosity perspective. Maybe it wasn't the most optimal use of my time, but of course I'm also, mm-hmm. and this is the thing which does make me feel like a thousand years old is 24 hour libraries were like a new quite controversial thing than, Mm. lots of places were doing when I was so we didn't have that which I think does also mean those kind of weird stories of like oddly enough if if you were doing it late at night you were already someone who was perhaps in a slightly worse position you like because you were a lot more limited in terms of what books you had in front of you but yeah I that's my very granddaddy opinion of of it what's your sort of um, take on it oh it's sort of it's slightly triggering I think I'm like too fresh out of uni to hear stories like that without remembering my own essay crises yeah my, I mean my predominant thought is no one enjoys an essay crisis it's absolutely horrible and I cannot imagine the kind of pressure you'd be under when it's your literal dissertation and that is so many words for all that like I think it was I think it was her in her interview she said that you know she bought she'd buy three packets of sweets from Sainsbury's to get her through the night and have an energy drink for all that you have sweets it's still like quite a torturous experience and I look back on my own essay crisis and sort of with a bit of pain and say the same thing feeling like oh I, you know this is such it's a, such a privilege to be writing about these things I'm really interested in I wish I'd started a bit sooner yeah, I think maybe we should be making more of a virtue of being prepared and I would say also sounding like a grandmother actually. As you move into adult life, I say at the ripe old age of 24, it's actually quite nice to have times when you work and times when you don't work and the middle of the night should not be associated with being a time where you work.
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and our political correspondent, Alva Ray. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. It's been recorded by Emma Leach and produced by Nick Hilton. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.